Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. We have two guests with us today, Stephen Wolf. How are you doing, Stephen? Good, good. How are you? Good. And we have Joshua Ferris, both have been on the podcast before. How are you doing, Josh? Hey, good to be with you. Thanks. And uh, for those who don't know, Stephen Wolf is, is the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. And uh, Josh is a Humboldt Research Fellow. He wrote The Creation of the Self, which I think both of your books came out around the same time, right, Josh? Yours came out last year? It came out last July. So after his, yeah, his, okay. his had gone through some rounds before that. And, and uh, you know, Stephen's book has gotten so much attention this year. I'm willing to just say in evangelicalism, it is the book of the year. It It, it is a phenomenon in and of itself, the fact that it's been almost universally denounced by evangelical elites in almost every publication. Someone's written something about it, usually negative. And uh, a lot of them are just some of the, the same old tired and, and honestly secondary uh, points that Stephen's making their writing against. So mm -hmm. I want to examine this a little bit because uh, even though I feel like I've been around the block in evangelicalism, I still find myself wondering why in the world Stephen gets so much vitriol and his book, when it's uh, honestly probably one of the most helpful and, well, I would say this about it. It is, it, it has made me ask more questions than any other book that I've read in recent memory from the crop of evangelicals that are crit critiquing it. Uh, and so even on that alone, even if you don't agree, it's just got some really good, thoughtful things to say about the Reformed tradition. And so um, I appreciate you guys joining me to talk about it. So I, I want to start with you, uh, Joshua, because you wrote this article for American Reformer, and, and you joked with me about how you would lose your fellowship with Yale or something by entering these waters and saying something nice uh, about Stephen. But um, re really what you're doing is you are highlighting the reaction against him and trying to help people understand what that is. And so the first thing you say is that reformed evangelicals have come unmoored from their own tradition. And I want to find out what you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean reformed evangelicals don't know what they're talking about? That's, yeah, good question. I was going to ask Stephen if he was on the CT Book Award of the Year. Um, he should have had gotten some sort of award on CT. You didn't make it? No, no. Surprisingly, I didn't make it. Huh, okay. No, no. <laughs> they should at least have a category, the most controversial book of the year. That would be something worthwhile, wouldn't it? I mean, they, yeah, they, but I mean, the whole function of all those books, it's just to hear my friends wrote these things. And, and, you know, oh, I know. I know. That's I why was... I like half of them are crossway books all the time. It's just, you know, all my friends wrote a book and here it is. So, yeah. No, you're right. It is. It is. It's a function. That, yeah. I was a reviewer for a couple of years ago for them and, um, it was astonishing how they, uh, the results, it was, I'll just say that it was quite a commentary. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's rigged. Um, wait, is this for Christianity today? Yes. So do they, I mean, is this money that's pulling the strings or is this just relationships or both? And they just tell you, this is what you're going to review. Well, they, I, I, I'm sure there's more going on to their final decisions. Uh, it, it, it was certainly the, 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 the conclusion was the opposite of what I had put forward in terms of ranking. But, um, but why these books get chosen, I think there's a lot of political reasons as well. Well, there's probably money in terms of who they're associated with, in terms of the publishers they're associated with. That seems obvious. I don't know 
all the details, but the uh, the review board, they initially choose a selection of books. And then from that uh, selection, they send it out to external reviewers to rank. And then the, uh, the external reviewers, there's so many, a limited number who are aware of kind of those categories or whatever. And they rank those uh, as they see it um, and then give some thick description why they think it should be ranked. In gotcha. terms of uh, this category, in evangelical theology. That's I didn't know you had that connection. So, um, well, so I have that connection um, loosely. I wouldn't say I have a thick connection with CT. No, um, so don't associate me too strongly. They're not going to claim. Uh, well, you. I, I, my guess is that you have no connection now. You're, you're. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's probably gone now. The rig yeah, process is gone. Um, and it's unfortunate because both of you. You're very thoughtful guys. I thought about this before we did the interview that I was like, well, you know, Stephen and Joshua would be part of any, any rational person would think that they would be part of the intelligentsia, that they would have a job, they'd be sustained, they'd be supported because uh, you guys are operating and have operated at very high levels. And yet uh, it is it is a cold um, world out there that rewards. Well, I guess maybe this is the way humans have always worked to some extent, but people reward their buddies and in this case, it seems like there's something going on with signaling to each other that Steven's bad as a way to almost ladder climb, you know, like, can we outdo each other on how bad we think this book is? And, and that signals to the guild that we're part of this, we have an identity. And so, so Josh, you say that the reason for this primarily, at least uh, at first is because evangelicals and reformed evangelicals in particular are, are unmoored from their own history. And that's an intriguing and, and also, I would say, a very uh, pointed criticism. Like that's th those are fighting words, right? To someone like a Peter Lightheart, who you go after quite a bit. So um, talk to us a little bit about that. Why do you make that statement? Yeah, I guess it is fighting words. I was trying to be kind in the way I, 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 I put it. But um, yeah, I think, uh, well, I think that's I think that's the case. I mean, I think in terms of um, the wider evangelical world, there are um, <clears throat> there are certain conditions that have been put in place that have uh, that uh, have shaped the culture of evangelicalism in a way that is largely the fruit of I think ultimately the fruit of kind of egalitarianism and entitlement, which just reflects or parallels kind of the um, what's been going on in in our societies since the civil rights movement and now. I don't want to make some comp get into some complex argument about civil rights. It's too complicated for me. I mean, Christopher Caldwell's book, I think, is fantastic in kind of setting the kind of the historical record of what was going on. And it, the civil rights really is a mixed bag in terms of what happened societally. But I think that's kind of crept into evangelicalism to where now we have, well, I think we have largely this almost complete there's so many parallels, this complete revolt against masculinity. Um, there's a there's a kind of gesturing toward toxic masculinity now in evangelicalism. There's um, we've just uh, as as men, we've become quite soft. Uh, so there's a kind of um, there's a kind of foregrounding of certain values and virtues such as niceness. I mean, niceness. Stephen isn't exactly nice all the time. That's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a critique, but he's not always nice. Um, and I, I mean, I could see this on the Twitter feed. You notice I, I wasn't, 
I didn't jump in or insert myself in those discussions. I kind of stepped away for a while. I wrote this uh, article. Most of it I wrote last year sometime, and I actually had a hard time getting uh, it published. And I think it worked out better this way anyway. But I did kind of step back for a while and just kind of observe without putting myself in there in the fire where there's so much noise and so much like, um, I mean, I got so many um, emails or texts from people because I did say some things early on defending Wolf and his colleague and um, <clears throat> behind the scenes. I mean, I was having lots of discussions with with people and pastors and in fact, a pastor whom I respected and still respect. Uh, I won't mention him, but um, we kind of had a kind of a kind of a harsh back and forth about uh, the sort of defense that was taking place of a particular individual who who kind of um, quite clearly used what, uh, you know, um, these cancel techniques to to sort of as a kind of hit job. It, it seemed obvious to me. But um, so this has been going on. I mean. And some other friends whom I respect, they were so close to this, this, this sort of fighting, this, uh, this war that was going on, I guess you could call it, that they would say things to me like, you shouldn't associate, you know, or um, because the Wolf has this sort of deep kind of, uh, how did they put it, this kind of... Um, what's the right word, kind of uh, wicked disposition. And it's coming out, it comes out sometimes in his tweets in terms of how some of the more, what would be perceived as the more extreme controversial things that you've said that are not in your book. And, yeah. um, well, and, like, uh, yeah, so. I think, I think we should have Wolf, <laughs> Stephen Wolf, who's sitting there hearing all this negativity, uh, <laughs> maybe say something about it. Um, so, so Stephen, do you think that, like, I don't know if there's one explanation, but this is a result of evangelicals being unmoored from their history, or is this just, you know, you're mean on Twitter, and so we're going to circle the wagons. What's going on? Uh, I mean, there's a bunch of dynamics going on. I mean, one, one is that uh, we're at a kind of moment there's there's a particular moment I think everyone kind of feels there's a kind of ground shifting politically. Uh, a lot of the younger people are are kind of in in a way kind of waking up and seeing that the the their uh, the country of their grandparents and great grandparents, which was once for them, is now against their their grandkids, and so now they they feel that there's a sort of new America. And and here I am saying and talking about an assertive politics based in based in some kind of heritage uh, of um, some kind of connection to people in place. And so I, I think that's there's that fear. And then there's the fact that I, I'm doing a lot of retrieval retrieval. So I'm grounding it in the sort of names that we're all supposed to re respect, especially within the last 10, 15 years. You have a kind of a, a retrieval of older sources, a lot of translation. And those are the people that I have in the book. So it makes it seem as if, hey, Wolf is just appealing to these older sources and applying it today at least then that's what i actually try to do so i think that's one fear is there's a kind of uh appropriation of a project for you know right-wing purposes uh, i think that's one of the fears um and yeah and and i'll i mean there's also the power aspect of this where 
the people who will allow get you a book contract with with Crossway or let you publish it at Gospel Coalition or whatever, they have they are of a certain disposition that is diametrically opposed to mine, which mine is my. I'm talking about a more assertive Christian politics. It's not passive aggressive. It's not using weak, like weakness as a sort of power play uh, within kind of politics. It's more of an out, out in the open kind of like the way right wing people talk about politics. It's out in the open. It's, just, it's explicit. This is what we, uh, this is what we want. Um, and uh, I think the kind of the Kellerite crowd doesn't like that. And so, if they were to come to my side and if they were to write a review that was positive towards my book, that would put them at odds with really the powers of kind of elite evangelicalism and easily get you canceled. So I think there's all sorts of dynamics going on. I think there's just there, but, but I think the basic thing is there's just a fear that I'm capturing a moment with a theology that appeals to people we're supposed to respect and we're told that we need to respect and then apply them in a in a in a more assertive manner that is opposed to what has become predominant in evangelicalism, which is kind of this Kellerite type, uh, you know, winsome uh, approach as as opposed to kind of a clear means end uh, yeah. politics is politics type approach. So that I mean that's like that's that's what I think. There's probably more to it, but uh, that's well. It's interesting you talk now. about the recovery. Because uh, I mean, there's so many examples of this. Most recent that I just noticed, someone sent me an article yesterday by this guy, uh, Jake uh, Meter, who uh, it, it, I, I skimmed through this piece. And it, it, he was uh, very concerned about the fact that I guess Zach Garris and I think then you, Stephen, had taken this quote from Davenant, who uh, talks about the order of Mars, natural relations, all these kinds of things, I guess. And uh, and that uh, this is appropriated for racism, that he's been taken out of context, all this stuff. And you read it and you're like, no, they didn't take him out of context. But there's this level 10 threat that they see from you taking a respected theologian that they like, or I guess they're, they're supposed to like. In fact, that's the way I think, I haven't gotten to the high levels you guys have, but I think that even in my academic career, that's how you signal in evangelicalism your sophistication is by quoting these people, right? And saying you're part of their tradition and then all of a sudden you're taking you're finding these other quotes and these other things they've said applying it to uh politics and civil relationships and 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 they're just freaking out about it and um and and that's that that's a kind of what i want to explore that's the pathology that um i think josh you you get into a little bit here because you give uh as far as i can tell four distinct issues at least that seem to be dividing this guild uh from Stephen's project. And the first one is ecclesiocentrism. So, um, Josh, what can you tell me about that? Why do you think that's one of the evidences that Reformed evangelicals are unmoored from their tradition uh, but by adopting this ecclesiocentrism? Yeah, <clears throat> well, um, <clears throat> so I think uh, Wolf is pretty clear in his book that, um, uh, and I think he's right, that um, there is this kind of robust kind of two kingdoms, classical two kingdoms theology that that runs through much of the reform tradition. I mean, there's lots of variations within that. And of course, there's there's offshoots from that with Anabaptist theology and sort of these neo-Kyparians who are doing something else different. And that's that's um, that's a relevant point to kind of some of the heated discussion right now that has sort of shaped uh, a lot of evangelicalism. And then, of course, there's the ecclesiocentrism. 
which has been um, put forward by many um, within uh, kind of the, the neo-Calvinist, neo-reformed uh, camps. Uh, Peter Lightheart stands out as, as, as an example who has defended this, this sort of view. I, I link to an article of ecclesiocentrism that Peter Lightheart wrote, and he kind of lays out in kind of nice bite-sized forms what it is that uh, we find in ecclesiocentrism. And um, so <clears throat> um, it's very clear. I mean, if you're familiar with uh, the um, with him and who's uh, kind of the um, oh, what's the what's the gentleman what's the gentleman's name who he was close to who was an ecclesiocentrist like a more radical ecclesiocentrist. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, uh, would it be Doc Sandlin? Uh, no, no, Theopolis, no. right? Uh, he was associated with Theopolis, but they were pretty close. They bring him out. He's an older gentleman now. Can't James Jordan? Sure. James Jordan. That's it. He's a kind of radical ecclesiocentrist who said things like, right, when we look at certain passages, like passages where um, Jesus makes the claim, um, you know, when um, his disciples are talking about, or uh, the, his followers are talking about um, his family, and he said... Um, you know, something to the effect of um, uh, these are these are not my brothers and sisters, but, you know, you uh, are my uh, brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God or something like that. Um, James Jordan takes that in a very extreme direction to suggest that uh, what is intended is that there's this whole sort of community that supplants the, the sort of natural family. And you see this in Peter Lightheart in several places where he talks about, um, and he says quite um, quite explicitly, he says, um, "Gospel is an inherently political message." Uh, I just I just read it. He says, "The church is my first family. Christians must learn to say this." The church is my first family, my first city, my first nation. And this is the sort of priority. This is the sort of a starting point for how it is that we are to even think about um, society and the nation and how we're to sort of orient ourselves around the problems in, um, in society. And so I think um, ecclesiocentrism has this sort of primary orienting orientation toward the church with almost a, um, uh, uh, with no sort of robust sense in which the family, the natural creational family plays a role in how uh, the orders of, of the imminent realm or this natural realm that we live in uh, presently. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think that's an important distinction between um that sets apart ecclesiocentrism and how it is that kind of Lightheart and others sort of operate and think about uh, their theology of, of the kingdom and the political realm presently and how we should interact with the world. Um, yeah. Maybe we should start calling that replacement theology because <laughs> that's what they're doing. It sounds like. Uh, so no, I, I, I think that's right. I think yeah. that's actually, that's interesting. That is where, well, it, it assumes that 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 there's that human nature is something that can just be. Uh, it's very kind of this plastic notion of human nature that's actually very modern, um, and kind of a radical alchemist or voluntarist type uh, understanding of human nature. Whereas my, my book assumes that there's with, with I think 
the reformed tradition and just Christian tradition broadly, that they're that we're all human beings with a fixed kind of essential nature. And that means that there are a set of good there are there this there are certain goods that are that are universally human and they're immutable. They're immutable in the sense that that's that's not going to change. So um, I, I assume that from the beginning, which means that grace or anything new or adventitious or anything that w- would enter into creation subsequent, you know, to creation, um, such as grace, cannot actually alter that. That uh, it can perfect it. Um, so, but it does seem that ecclesiocentrism has this notion where it sort of grace wipes out uh, kind of hu- human nature and then kind of reconstructs it by means of. Uh, almost like by means of the church, such that like the, that marriage is 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 not a natural good anymore. It's a good because it's it pictures Christ in the church, and that's really the only. It seems to be the only reason why marriage is still a good. So it's like it's reconstructing through the gospel what human relations is, and so that's why like that James Jordan quote that Joshua you mentioned would make sense in that model. Uh, whereas so that, that the church really is kind of that sort of first family and we only have families, not because it's natural or fundamental to a, a human good, but because it reflects what, what it is true of the church. Right. So, but my, my model is, is, is I think more kind of historically Christian or non-Anabaptist, put it that way, where there's actually, there's the human being created as human with a mutable set of goods that, that, uh, yes. and towards which he drives. So that and a, a Christian who becomes a Christian, no, does not cease to be a human being, but actually is a human being perfected or restored. And so whatever ever is essential and fundamental to human being, you actually share with your non-Christian neighbor. Um, but those, so just like them being, uh, uh, your neighbor being married and having children, you having all, all these things are just fundamental goods that are not then sort of reconstructed and made through and good only on account of its relation to the church or imaging Christ in the church, but because it's actually human, a human good as created. So, yeah, uh, right. which I, which I take to just be Christian, uh, I, I just like the and biblical basic Christian yeah. tradition. And, yeah. Yeah, it is. It uh, well, I think it is. I, and and obvi- obviously, when you look more in depth in into uh, Peter Lightheart's hermeneutic, I mean, he's much more um, post liberal, um, and he is. Uh, when you read his baptism book, he's clearly, and he even says this toward the end of his book, the uh, the priesthood of the plebs. Uh, you're familiar with that book, his kind of academic treatise on baptism. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's very clear toward the end. The way that he develops his doctrine of baptism is very egalitarian. And that kind of um, fills in some of the gaps in terms of how he uh, sees the um, the ordering of 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 um, of 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 uh, how it is that we're to operate in terms of um, gender um, and um, how it is that we operate as 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 um, the family of God and things of that sort. But I think um, what you're saying is not only historically rooted, um, and he, in some one of his articles, he admits this. I think to some extent he admits, yeah, um, uh, Stephen Wolf may be historically rooted a bit uh, or more closely aligned with the tradition. But this is where I see uh, the need for ongoing reform, right? Some reformed Christians will say we always need ongoing reform. Um, I think that's a mistaken way of applying that principle. But 
But that, that's one of the things about the Lightheart review that I always kind of thought it was, I kind of you know, chuckle over, always is, is that it's, well, it's almost as if it's like, he basically recognizes that my conclusions follow validly from these, the, from my principle, from my uh, premises. So it's a, so my arguments are valid. Um, he just disagrees with the premises, which is fine. Problem though is all the premises are basically historically reformed orthodox. So it's like, you know, he, he's basically uh, pushing back against the critics on my on the reform side. I mean, yeah. he's effectively doing that. He's effectively pushing back against the people, my critics, to on on the kind of the more solidly traditional reform side by basically acknowledging that my conclusions follow from reform tradition. So um, that's good. Yes. Yeah. Whereas whereas he he wrote the review for his kind of Theopolis crowd, which doesn't affirm those you know quote dualisms uh and say that you know you so it was mainly for his for the theopolis crowd i, I think that's what the review was all for right I, yes. I do want to get into the dualism thing in a moment because that's one of the second categories here that uh josh focuses on but you know as a someone who writes history and, and reads history it, it's easy to go back and, and look at if people will admit this today uh, if you're talking about let's say like soteriology some will say i'm a calvinist i'm arminian i'm an amarillian or whatever and and the, these have distinct meanings and you can trace them historically and one of the difficulties about this is that ecclesiocentrism okay what is that you know which which uh reformers which uh fathers of the church believe in ecclesiocentrism and it's kind of this like broken map to try to go back it, it, or it maybe in the map's not broken we just haven't done the research and properly identified these things um i, I see so many people especially more i would maybe more theonomic types um we'll just say it's all pietism right like you know all the objections are just pietism or something like that and we're, we're grasping for these explanations to try to make sense of it but but i do want to try to be as precise as possible and i do think this is a thing ecclesiocentrism like that's certainly a thing i even remember um hearing just in pop evangelical circles uh for a long time and, and you mentioned civil rights joshua but uh they would you would hear things like well um you know the reason there was segregation and and the reason that that there were bad uh, race relations in the united states is because we just really weren't christian enough and uh, you know and, and even like sort of subtly getting giving these hints that like Martin Luther King Jr. though was the true Christian. And when he came, some of these uh, issues got wiped away because now people were looking at each other as brothers and sisters, children of God in, in this more Christian way, even though we know that that wasn't a third American great awakening as MLK said it was, it, it, there, there wasn't like a revival of theological orthodoxy or uh, people weren't getting saved in, in, you know, in tent revivals or anything like that. It was just, it was a new egalitarian way. Yes. Well, it's a mixed bag, as you said, Joshua. So I don't want to get too deep into it. But but at least we know that there was the start of this egalitarian way of viewing things. And, and I'm wondering whether some of this is is just theology that's made to fit a uh, I think you said this the other day on Twitter, Stephen, uh, theology made to fit a post-war consensus. And it's it really doesn't have any roots deeper than that. I mean, what do you think? With ecclesiocentrism specifically, Stephen, do you think that's like, a, does this have longevity in the reform tradition? Or is this just something that theologians today are trying to make fit because they have a, a commitment to liberalism? Yeah, I, 
Well, I, I don't know about like, well, I, I don't know about motives exactly, but I do think that if, if some idea becomes uh, a, like appealing to the mass audience and a mass society, then it probably has something to do with like their preconditioned to, to affirm it um, in some way. And so, yeah, I, I think there is, there certainly is an egalitarian um, impulse behind that, that notion of uh, like, you know, that the church is only, is the only true Christian nation and uh we can all just um almost in a sense form a society on on no basis on, on no kind of similarity except that the kind of the spiritual be like you know um being united to christ and that that's the only ground of kind of having this sort of unity that somehow can can work in civil society and in the real world uh, within within earth um and so uh, yeah, I think there's an egalitarian impulse, but but also like I think with the with the Theopolis crowd as well, that there is this there's it, it doesn't it, it's not obvious to me that it's serious in the sense that it's ever actually going to happen. Like that that mm-hmm. um, that if if any if their vision of society is going to happen, it's not going to happen through politics. It's not going to happen through. Uh, like ordinary politics, it's going to be a sort of like spiritual revival and then it just organically arises. So it's not a, it's not an actual political movement that brings about something. And so what this means then is their politics can, can look like fantasy. So it can look like, wait, that, that can't work or wait, that's absurd or it's not practical. Um, because it's stepped out of the realm of politics and what seems to be possible given kind of the hist- given experience. And so it's that you can talk about these egalitarian themes, even, even when they're questioned, like if I questioned and said, wait, that's not how things work. That's not how society has worked. That's not how the, the, the easy answer for them is to simply have this like post-millennial move. Uh, which is to say it'll just be a movement of the spirit that thing things will change so you can have this sort of fantastical p- political thought uh, because it's not something you're actually going to bring about through your own agency it's going to be kind of a spiritual event if that gotcha. makes sense yeah no it does. Yeah. i haven't thought about it in those terms but i yeah i think that's yeah i think that's a an, a good way to put it i think when i read um uh, lighthart's proposal on politics and uh, in his sort of ecclesiocentric um, articles. Um, it seems just pol- politically and practically impotent. He has no program really other than um, this sort of, uh, you know, just um, evangelism. Uh, but, um, but there's no natural principles that are orienting uh, what he would do with society. Uh, you know, uh, after, you know, um, evangelizing somebody, um, it is practically impotent because, well, he's given up almost all natural principles. I think one really important point that really needs to be highlighted is the emphasis that Scripture gives to family throughout the Old Testament and leading up to the New Testament. Um, we see these household codes, for example, and then you see these picked up in the New Testament, reaffirmed in Ephesians 5. And um, these become sort of ordering principles that uh, orient our lives. They're not inconsistent with the, um, the redemptive program that we see in the New Testament. In fact, they're, they're assumed and affirmed 
and honored by Paul himself in Ephesians 5 when he honors the, the authority structure of man and and woman, which we I, I don't think most of us have any understanding of anymore, hardly. I mean, it's 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 um practically I'm struggling to to try to practice that in my own life with my own families. My family, I mean, my immediate family and the extended um, family that I have. Um, but nonetheless, you see it affirmed in Paul. Mm -hmm. And um, even when it's preached, I mean, you could have somebody who's exegetically sound who preaches Ephesians 5. But there's always this sort of um, preface in which it's kind of undergirded, the exegesis in which it's, um, you know, um, uh, when we when we see Paul talking about kind of the um, the authority structure of, of man being the head of the woman, uh, uh, it's always prefaced by, but this is for the sake of, um, 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 uh, uh, this is always um, sort of made sense of by the love of Christ, um, and um, which completely undermines the sort of potential for sort of abuse. But that's not what like uh, Paul is yeah, saying yeah. in Ephesians 5. I mean, he's affirming a kind of authority structure. Um, certainly there is a role to, um, to the sort of um, the love of Christ as being an informing principle and in how men are to operate in, in the homes and things. But, but it never undermines the authority structure that Paul is affirming from nature, from the Old Testament itself that he's picking up again. Um, but that's almost bereft in um, or, or com completely lost in the sort of ecclesiocentric model that we have that that is um, present throughout most of Reformed history and uh, and as well as uh, in Roman Catholic theology, where the family becomes a kind of central type of 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 the church itself and becomes an informing principle in how we're to understand the church itself mm -hmm. well I, I don't want to spend um I, this has been no. good i don't want to spend all the time on lightheart so yeah because uh, there's there's a lot and we're not going to get to everyone who made uh crit critiques i think one of the things that motivated me to do this is like someone like a lightheart and then someone like an r scott clark sometimes sound awfully similar <laughs> with the critiques they're leveling and i'm thinking i thought they were like on opposite ends of the spectrum, but that that's, there is, there's some commonalities holding some of these people together. Ecclesiocentrism may be one. Dualism is the other one you talk about, uh, Joshua. And, um, you know, this one intrigues me a little bit because being someone who's read, uh, or at least I, I started out reading a lot of Francis Schaeffer when I was trying to, uh, I, I think that's what every evangelical does, right? When they want to get into deep things and, and philosophy, they, they're handed a book of Francis Schaeffer. And, and there's a lot of good things in Schaeffer, but, um, and I don't think you specifically mentioned him, but he just came to mind as someone who, I wonder if he were alive today. I, I don't, I think he'd be a lot more charitable to Stephen's work than these other folks, <laughs> for sure. But but his oh, disciples, yeah. you know, I'm wondering if they would, if, if that's the thing, like there's this dualism that, that um, they see in Stephen some kind of a separation between the temporal world and the eternal world that they get really nervous about. And maybe explore that for us. Why did they get nervous about that? What's the threat? Hmm. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll Joshua first. Yeah. Yeah. What's the threat of separating it? Yeah. Well, why, why are they nervous that he, he wants to uh, make a distinction between those two things and say, maybe there's different, 
ways in which God uh, arranges these worlds. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on the sort of the new kingdom theologies that are kind of being promulgated. Um, I've been exposed to them some. I was exposed to them on, under Russell Moore at uh, Southern Seminary. And I mean, he's kind of putting forward this kind of new kingdom stuff. He's been putting it forward for a while. And his just... Wait, you worked for Russell Moore? Hold on. Did you work for him? No, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. All right. I, just... I, I went right, to Southern. I took, I took classes with him. And um, gotcha. so I was close to people who did work for him. But anyway, um, anyway, his doctoral dissertation, I mean, he's putting forward a kind of new kingdom theology that, uh, that eschews the kind of two kingdoms that um, seems to be prominent throughout the much of the reform tradition, classical reform theology. And so um, there seems to be this kind of I mean, you can see it in many of his statements throughout the years when he was kind of uh, criticizing Trump because Trump is kind of this um, figure, right, um, that is not diplomatic. He's not diplomatic like Reagan was, right, or like uh, W. W is kind of this cute, cute um, leader, right? Trump comes along and he's this brash, uh, non-diplomatic politician and that becomes part of the um, sort of the aim of critique of people like Russell Moore. But also there seems to be this, um, this um, presupposition that almost anything that is natural that hasn't been actually redeemed in some way or saved um, is, is inherently bad. That, um, I mean, he, he makes, so he makes several statements like this when he's criticizing both Trump, his followers, as well as the kind of Christian nationalist crowd that was kind of, um, you know, developing um, under the, um, the influences of Trump and Trump's administration. He says things like this, this is not our home, don't place your hope here, right? There's always this this sort of underlying kind of rhetoric that that is actually motivated by certain theological theological principles, that this kingdom here is not our kingdom, but our kingdom is 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 in the future um, and uh, will be sort of consummated in and through the church itself, rather than through the sort of natural kingdom, the the political society in which we live. And um, so anyway, so he makes these statements, this is not our home, you know, um, uh, the um, I think I had another quote in there from him, um, uh, but um, th there there is this assumption that the principles that are operating operational in politics are um, well almost inherently evil themselves. They they themselves need to be redeemed, and so you create this kind of vacuum. You see this in a lot of TGC articles. I got so frustrated for many years reading sociopolitical works um, that were coming out of the TGC. And they, it was always like they were trying to gesture towards some kind of third way, but I couldn't figure out what that was. What are you actually offering in terms of how we as Christians- You just want to hold on to power. That's all. That's what your problem right. is. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's a good point. I, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and, and maybe these two can collapse into one because that's maybe where the ecclesiocentrism is, is justified theologically is within this dualist framework. But but Stephen, I have heard um, more than one person talk about how you're scary because you quote Aquinas and you're you're going back to Roman Catholic categories. And this is actually 
against some people will say against the reform tradition. So what, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, I mean, this this goes to one of the things I didn't entirely expect. Uh, and that is that I, I'd be accused of essentially being Roman Catholic, like a crypto Romanist or something like that. Um, by theologians of all people. And it was one of those. That's why I wrote like this is start with Brian Matson essentially saying I have Roman Catholic categories. I, I responded by with an article saying or the title was correcting theologians because it was it was just kind of uh, silly. But the yeah, um, people think that if you if you distinguish nature and grace, you distinguish sacred, secular, distinguish temporal, eternal, or distinguish heaven and earth, you're actually jumping out of the reformed realm and into kind of Romanist type distinctions but that's just simply false um i mean i don't know i i, I don't know yeah it's it's frustrating it was one of the actually very frustrating things about this is that that's just obviously false if you've only read kuiper or if you've only read like maybe bovink's take on the reform orthodoxy maybe you'd be confused i guess um uh, but if you read turretin or calvin or really any one of this of the 16th and 17th centuries um you'll know that all those distinctions are there uh, it, it's, you, you know, there's a difference between distinguishing and separating, and there's some, sometimes a fine line between the two. Um, but yeah, the, everyone kind of assumed that there was a distinction between those two things, uh, between the, the quote dualisms. And it wasn't really until the weird 20th century, to my knowledge, that all those things kind of broke down. Uh, I think coincided with the loss of Latin, so people weren't reading these old, older works. Um, also, the descendancy of a, like the new natural law within Roman Catholicism. And there was like a polarizing effect. Uh, also, Karl Bart probably had an uh, influence oh, yeah. here. I mean, Joshua probably knows all this history better than I do. Um, but yeah, there was something weird happened in the 20th century. But it, the fact is, uh, people were quoting, Tom, let's say Thomas Aquinas. People were quoting him all the time, even on theological matters. I only cite him on political, like so, like social political things. I don't cite him for, I mean, the, for for all these, you know, dualisms, I'm citing Turton, Calvin, Maestrich, I'm citing Bavink, I'm citing all sorts of these guys um, who are in the reform camp and not Thomas. So it's just, a, I think it, it revealed to me that these, that a lot of reform theologians, especially if you were trained in like the 80s and 90s and you did not read, you have not read the, all the works that have come out within the last few decades, like maybe like like 20 years, mm-hmm. Um you're still stuck in an old way of thinking that is really 20th century uh, reform theology and really kind of unmoored, like Josh said, from that that older tradition. Well, well, um, so in other words, it's just kind of ignorant. I, honestly, I, frankly, it's to, to say that my distinctions are Romanist is just straight up ignorance. And I, yeah, it, I, it, I, it's ridiculous. I'm surprised. Uh, yeah, well, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, but there is a retrieval of Thomas right now in the reform tradition. You're seeing that, which uh, maybe that's uh, hopefully that's a good thing. At least it's it's there's an awareness um, that is, you know, people are becoming more and more aware of the sources that that uh, that uh, their own tradition, their own tradition has and how influenced it was by Thomas Aquinas. I mean, Turretin. I mean, when you look at Turretin's anthropology and um, aspects of his eschatology, it's almost right out of Aquinas. I mean, um, so to say that um, uh, to to appropriate Aquinas is 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 uh, representative of of uh, Roman Catholicism it seems 
I mean, just radically ignorant to me. You're obviously not Roman Catholic for all sorts of reasons. I probably am more sympathetic to Roman Catholicism than you are, but um, I didn't get that out of your book at all. Uh, yeah, it's funny too because I, I had that one one of my famous tweets, I guess that that said some like blamed Roman Catholic conservatives for our the mess we're in. <laughs> so yeah. that was one of my. So it's like yeah, but yeah, um, mad at you um, But it was just yeah, but that, that see that that was like the point of Matson's review was to say the book's stupid. So there's different ways to like review a book to try to get it dismissed. It's evil yeah. or stupid. His point, mm. he had a little bit of the evil in there, but it was mainly to say it was stupid. And I think, I, I mean, I don't know if it backfired because I don't know how many people read my response, but, uh, but it, it was just, it was one of those ironic things where like he's calling something Romanist when it's really comes straight out of Turton. <laughs> it's just stuff like that where, it was yeah. like, come on. Um, but I, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that people realize that, that, that all these, what they thought was reformed is actually just a weird 20th century. Um, it is weird. It, revision, it, so. revision of the, uh, the tradition that they're a part of. Ironically, yeah. it raises lots of questions about to what extent they're truly um, reformed. And if there is a kind of a tradition um, so, so there's there's one test case, though, that, that I think maybe illustrates this better, makes it more concrete for people listening. And that is, um, Stephen, you've been it's been controversial, I guess, in some circles when you talk about uh, how pastors shouldn't be as involved in politics. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but th this is uh, something that especially uh, people who consider themselves very reformed. Uh, they have been accustomed to thinking over the last few years that the problem is really uh, pietism or and, and I do think actually pietism is a big problem. I've talked about this, but but um, everything kind of collapses into that, perhaps. I don't know. Um, and that uh, the danger here is your pastors need to be more involved. That's the problem. That's why we got into this mess is pastors left the uh, politics and pastor. We had the black robe regiment right at the American Revolution. And so when yeah. you start making separations between the temporal and eternal realm and the function of a pastor and the function of a magistrate, uh, and you're, you make too far of a separation, then you're excluding the either the gospel light or the influence of Christianity upon the public sphere. And I think that's how the layman level, that, that's how they're hearing this, that like, okay, Stephen doesn't want uh, yeah. pastors and, and the Bible too involved. He wants just these natural principles. And no, we, we like the Bible, but we need to get back to that. And pastors need to be more political. Yeah, there's a bunch of things there. I, th I think one within evangelicalism and this, I think this is true with like the Theopolis crowd. I think it's true with uh, like the neo-Calvinist Kyperian crowd that they see the church as like the uh, the originator of our Christian politics, the church meaning the institution. So the pastor is a sort of is a guy who like sets our marching orders and we leave the church and we go do politics or, or we go say, do what he basically says or what he taught us. And, and, th and that's really, that's, that's, that's it. Like that's, and that's been evangelicalism for many decades. Uh, and this is where people start thinking I'm on like Scott Clark's side where I start saying, well, no, I don't think the pastor should be the social movement leader. I don't think we take our marching orders from pastors. Uh, we should take it. We are, Christians in politics, like we should discuss politics outside of the church as institution. We should see the sermon as mainly 
feeding the soul for eternal life as opposed to some sort of this worldly um um i keep saying the word marching orders but that seems to be the most appropriate uh and we should see politics as something we do with a pastor in the group in the circle talking about things but not as the leader telling us what to do uh and i, I think that's also true that's why i got in trouble once because i said that theologians should be should focus on theology and not politics um and uh because i because i think that that politics is something yeah for the sort of temporal natural kingdom we're all uh uh we, we can all think about what would be politically sound what would be politically appropriate and, and prudent and we don't need to kind of wait from on high to to go do those things and so yeah i i um that, that's not to say the pat the like pastors don't have a role it's not it's not that they don't have some sort of quote prophetic voice uh, but we should think of politics as something we do outside of the institution of the church. And we should think of the institution of the church as the administration of word and uh, the word of God and, and sacrament, which is actually oriented us to uh, to heavenly life and not earthly life. So, um, but th that's not pietism because I think that you can do Christian politics without it being kind of certified as Christian by a pastor telling you what to do. Does that make sense? So we like we we we're into, like I'm Presbyterian. Josh, we're Anglican, right? Yes. So John is uh, Baptist. We could get together and talk about Christian politics, um, and not not in the in the in sort of church institution context. And we can go do political things as Christians for Christian ends. Um, so that's that's my take on all that. And I and I think that's historical. I mean, I know there's a black robe regiment and all that, but. Uh, there's also a function of the, of the fact that pastors were the most intel, like uh, educated people in the past as well. But there, anyway, this we can get a whole new different subject. Well, this, I, but, I do think but, it merits a little bit of explanation, just because this is where I think my, this audience in particular that's listening to this, their heads start exploding. Some of them, at least, because they're thinking yeah. 2020, and they're thinking, I went to a church, my pastor didn't stand up to the tyranny. I mean, we didn't meet for a year. And I wish my pastor yeah. was involved in politics, right? There's sort of this simplistic, I don't want to say that's simplistic, that's that's legitimate, but it's, but, but, but on a base level, they start hearing like a pastor should be involved in theology and not politics or in the church and not the state or something. They start thinking, okay, well, that was my pastor who was useless <laughs> during that whole ordeal. Yeah. Um, well, that, that, that's, a, that's him entrusted with the institution uh, who, sh who can resist the state. Um, but that that's different than saying that we are like sort of commissioned to do Christian politics after the sermon when we walk out the door. Um, we, we should we should think and talk about politics as Christians. Um, so so without, can I, without the need for someone who has a sort of sacred office that is really meant there that it, who is there primarily to feed your soul for eternal life. So if you said um, like a bowling alley or a bowling league, you, you, we don't do Christian bowling, right? Whereas Christians, we can go do bowling. <laughs> like we could do a, yeah. I'm trying to take another activity, which is obviously different, but like in a temporal world, we can operate in these ways and it's not, it doesn't have to have rubber stamped Christian on the front of it for it to be legitimate. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't need to be an outgrowth of the instituted church. Okay. You don't need in order. You don't need a political office or a hey. This is the room where we do politics next to the pastor's office. Like we we don't need we 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 do politics in the political realm, and it can be informed by 
by pastors. So the way I think of it is like in, in the military, I've said this several times on podcasts, but I think of it as like the, the, with, with regard to a political movement, the, the pastors are like chaplains in the military. So they're analogous and a chaplain in the military is on the special staff to a commander. So every battalion, brigade, division, corps, they all have these chaplains assigned to commanders. But the chaplains are not in the chain of command. It the the commander doesn't need to go over and get approval from the chaplain. He doesn't tell the chaplain what to tell other people. He's a sort of guy to the side in the in the organization chart. He's to the side, whereas the other units are subordinate to the commander. But he still plays a, a role advising and and uh, the the commander. So I think in a political movement, the pastors as pastors can serve as a chaplain um, to the movement um, without as pastor being a sort of uh, yeah, in charge or the commander, yeah. if that makes sense. So yeah. it's not that they're separate, but also you just simply, you don't need, you, you, you can, you can have a Christian family when you're, even though you're not a pastor, you don't need, you know what I mean? Like you can have a Christian so you don't need to have some pastor saying, telling you what to do within um, in order for something to be Christian. That makes sense. I, I know people don't like this, but it's like. <laughs> no, yeah. I've, I've come but, around to it. But, I've, but I've, this is where like, yeah, the, yeah the, the, the people don't like the dualism because now that it's different than what they're used to. They think that politics comes from on high. It comes through the church. It comes from the mouth of the pastor. We get our marching orders. We go. What I'm saying is more like politics is actually. A little come more complicated where the principles arise from our own existence as human beings and they're applied um and and so and 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 pastors have a role in informing things about that but fundamentally is that our political life is a human thing that we kind of can know from experience and deliberation amongst ourselves being informed by different authorities um to for action so it's more of a, a bottom-up informed from on high than mm -hmm. uh, like the church as a conduit through which we do our politics yeah i don't and, know and, <laughs> that and not makes to make sense uh, at all. <laughs> no i think so and not to make converts for joshua to anglicanism but i have to say my limited experience with anglicanism i think anglicans get this a lot better <laughs> they, they understand this more and baptists are just a mess <laughs> in my and i could say that i guess as someone who's more baptistic but uh you know, you go to you go to a church, let's say that squeezes every single activity of life through the ecclesiastical, like like whether it's who you're going to marry, who you're, what job you're going to get. Um, you know, if you want to be involved in some kind of outdoor activity or sport, it's got to be through the church. And there's a men's group, and we got this for kids, and we right. There's all these programs, mm -hmm. and, and and that's like that's the assumption in a lot of like Baptist churches, like. That, that if, hey, if we just got more resources, if we were just bigger, we would be able to do this and that and maybe some political things too, but we we just got bigger. And then, and you had 2020 and then they're like shutting down for a year or more. And, and, and clearly like one of the obviously main reasons a church exists is to meet and they're ignoring that and they're just deferring to the civil magistrate. I think that's where people got frustrated. They're like, all these other activities are, are put through the church. How come in this one area all of a sudden there's this incentive not to be involved when like, it's like you had one job, like <laughs> open up and meet. So, so I get, I get the instinctual kind of knee jerk to that because it sounds slightly familiar, but it is different. Um, Cause you, you're not saying that a pastor doesn't have the responsibility uh, ecclesiastically to meet and maybe even defy and, and engage in civil disobedience at times. You're not saying that I don't think, 
um, you're, you're not saying, well, that's politics, so pastors shouldn't be involved. When, when politics comes into the church, the church needs to push back and address that. Which what you're saying is like the, the, there is like a, a separate role that the church has uh, being an outpost of heaven and administration of grace. Um, and I, I just think in my experience, Anglicans, I think, understand that a little more. They're not forming their own bowling leagues. <laughs> they, they'll say, go get involved in the town bowling league. Right. Um, I think at least maybe my experience is off there. But uh, I don't know if that does that help. Uh, like I'm trying to bring it down to the layman level. Am I tracking with you, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, well, I think I mean within the with the COVID thing that that's them. Uh, if politics hinders them from accomplishing their mission or their calling, their sacred calling as a pastor, and they're entrusted with the institution, they they can they can resist um, right. civil powers. What I mean is that there's a tendency to think that well if the pastor doesn't tell me what the proper tax rate is, like income tax is in, is income tax theft or is it not? And at what point? And then I go from there and I have a little pamphlet uh, given to me in church. It says, these are the like tax income tax is bad or something like that. And then they go, okay, well the Bible says income tax is bad. And so then they go and now we do politics. Whereas I'm saying maybe we should, instead of trying to get some absolute it's good or bad, we on the ground say, what's going to benefit us as a community, as mm. a people, do politics as a, del a deliberative effort among different people from different authorities, from different sources, and then we make the most prudent judgment uh, we can. I mean, we're, politics is a mess now, but that's that's ideal. Is that now, should we have tax rate? We obviously need tax revenue of some sorts. What's the best way to do this and that? And so instead of trying to get like, what is the what is the absolutist moral principle for taxation and tax revenue from the pastor and teaching the Bible. Instead, we on the ground as people uh, work through what are the needs, what are the means we have, what, what are the ends of political life, things like that. So, um, yeah. yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, I, I think there, there's sort of a, a, a practical way of approaching politics and it's and not everything's like this black and white that saith the Lord, right? You could, you could find when you're preaching through yeah. uh, the story of David and you find, Hey, if it, it, when they wanted a king and he's going to tax you at 10 percent doesn't seem like a good idea guys right we can we could talk about that's in the bible right but it's not like a um you you can't start hard and fast rules about like well the pastor said this is evil there this this rate or whatever therefore this is our christian duty and obligation um, I, mean, I frankly think like the so, the books written to try to justify an economic system that is strictly from the bible is just so bizarre to me <laughs> i think it's I, I don't know. Yeah. It seems ridiculous, but anyway. Well, sorry, sorry, Josh. I know I, I that was my fault. I belabored this point way too far because it was. No, I mean, I think there's, I think there's something just uh, related to that that's important. There's something that's gone on in politics about um, kind of uh, the rhetoric that's um, just these sort of um, clear dichotomies of 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 good and evil, and everything is 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 very clear cut, either good and evil. And maybe there's some truth in that, but you see this rhetoric obviously in um, kind of hawkish uh, politicians that, that kind of dominates the rhetorical um, strategies in order to, um, to uh, well, it's, well, it's kind of, it's power game and it's been co-opted and, and utilized uh, obviously by the left in varying ways to, um, to, um, to, to sort of control um, 
the discussion and the narrative. You see this kind of game being played also in evangelicalism. This is something that I kind of, I did, I was trying to um, lay out in the article to some degree um, in terms of um, the the sort of relation or the, the parallels that we see in the mechanisms that are used in evangelicalism that um, begin to look more and more and more like the kind of political rhetorical power plays that we see in politics. Um, but, um, but you have coupled with that, you have this sort of, it's almost like this underlying idea um, that politics itself is, is, is bad. Um, and that uh, also that anything that is natural is bad. I don't know if they, they would say that. So, um, but um, Russell Moore, uh, his quote, uh, Mayberry is surely on its way to hell as quickly as Sodom, end quote. I think uh, Stephen um, uh, actually cites that quote in his book. I can't remember. But yeah. um, I thought that was, that's quite a commentary. Um, um, but uh, that coupled with this sort of, this sort of, um, this rhetorical power play of, 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 of kind of setting out these sort of radical dichotomies um, seems to be at play within the sort of evangelical discussions presently. And Christian nationalism, ironically, has become the, um, the evil, the bad, the wicked, mm -hmm. that, um, uh, I mean, you're, you're kind of the enemy now um, that they're after, ironically. Um, well, John, so... Yeah, we've been going for an hour. Can I just have one final thing? I had it, you know, in two parts, but I'll just combine them and flatten them together. Uh, ethnic instinctionism and racism and bigotry, because you're you're tap dancing on it right now. You're talking about uh, I mean, hey, was was there any black people in Mayberry? I don't remember. I don't remember if there were, you know, that that's the uh, fear that it seems like a lot of people, Kevin DeYoung, Neil Shenvey. I mean, I don't know who didn't bring this up when they were reviewing Stephen's book, that this is going to push for some kind of a bigotry. And that was your last point, Josh. So like, how do you see that playing out? Like, wh what does that say about the evangelicals who are critiquing Stephen? Like, wh what what do they believe that's made them all hung up on on racial matters in these odd ways and, and seeing a threat in him? Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, this is just, I think, a, a reflection, a commentary on, on not only the, the political power plays, but also the sort of values that many of the evangelicals themselves have imbibed to such an extent that when they read Stephen Wolf's book, that's um, what, they, what they jump to immediately, which to some extent, I saw this as to some extent, secondary uh, as missing the kind of the bigger picture of, of, of the argument that he's trying to set out. And it rather than it, it being a sort of implication that we can, once we understand the project or the program itself and how it fits in the reformed world and how it fits with our biblical, our, our reading of, of scripture, it becomes kind of foregrounded in a way that um, is co-opted to um, to to undermine his his sort of credibility and um, 
and to dismiss it's a it's a it's a it's an easy way to dismiss the book and i think it's been used in that way quite frequently to dismiss the book and that's really um unfortunate but again it's a commentary on the culture and the fact that as evangelicals i think we've imbibed too much of the culture and we don't even realize it um so the ethnic ethnic instinctionism stuff um racism uh <clears throat> obviously these are complicated matters but again i think we need to major on the majors in terms of the argument that he that wolf is making and then talk about the implications of that and how to work that out but let me let me bring it down a, a few um notches to the concrete level to my place my family when i think about my daughter i think about this a lot um i think about like um how is it that, um, who is it that I would want my daughter to marry? I think about the complexities of, of marriage today and how, you know, in many ways we're doing quite poorly, how we're doing quite poorly on understanding sexuality, gender, gender roles. We're totally, we're confused. I think these parallels are not unrelated. When I think about my daughter, I think, you know, what can I do to help her um, become a flourishing woman, to have, uh, you know, to be successful um, in, in life, uh, to be a good, uh, you know, to have a good life? Um, and I think about, well, how, you know, who is she to marry? I think, well, I mean, with the complexities of the world, I mean, I think there's, there's some prudence and wisdom in um, thinking about our own culture, um, both you know, kind of nationally and locally, geographically, our culture even, and how it is that we think about, um, you know, um, successful marriages. To some extent, um, it seems imprudent at one level uh, for my for my daughter to marry somebody that is from a radically different culture, where, um, I mean, marriage itself is hard enough. When you add all these additional complications on marriage, you raise the probabilities that the marriage could be unsuccessful. Um, the, it, it's important, yes, to have a gospel-centric marriage, right? This is this is going to be the sort of the harp that um, many of the critics of, of, of Wolf would kind of push. But there are other practical considerations within a gospel-centric marriage that are related to, to, to sort of the, the, the daily dynamics and rhythms of the marriage that are, that are, that are important, that are relevant to the values and the, the, the virtues that uh, the marriage is after. I mean, uh, to some extent, I grew up in the Midwest. I married a Southern girl, um, a Southern girl who grew up uh, in, in, in Brazil, who's a third culture kid. The, um, the number of cultural and uh, uh, communication sort of challenges that we have, um, we have a, you know, we, I think we have a pretty good marriage, but it's been a hard process. And the cultural differences that we have um, make it difficult to, at times, to really understand one another. So, I mean, at some, so, I'm just trying to bring it down to uh, a level of yeah, yeah. I mean, you're uh, saying you want your consideration and prudence, wisdom that yeah. I think is um, that parallels or has has um, some import to this 
this broader question about how it is that we think of ordering our families, ordering our society, and then ordering our nation that's um, that's relevantly guided by this sort of principle that he brings up with um, similarity and difference. Um, yeah, well, that, let me, yeah, yeah if I could, I could jump in like the, the yeah. I just, I, my wife and I were talking about this last night, uh, something, you know, not, not marriage itself, but, uh, but why, why cultural homogeneity could be a good thing and, and why it's, um, why it can give you opportunities to kind of love other people in, in, um, in ways you couldn't, if they're, if they're kind of heterogeneous society. And one was just we went to our church and we we practice uh, Christmas caroling uh, last night. So that's what we did for like an hour and a half last night. We had a practice for some reason before we do it on Saturday because we're Presbyterians. Um, but anyway, uh, I guess we're modern Presbyterians. Anyway, we want to do that. But the the point being, as we're driving back, we were thinking, oh, are we going to go to the community right outside where we meet for church? And then we're thinking, wait, what's the demographics of that? And we're thinking, because we're, we live kind of the, somewhat in the Raleigh area. There's like a uh, Hindu population. Do we go to it? What, what, what do we do when we go to a Hindu family and we start singing? Like, how does that work? But then I was thinking uh, at other points in my life, other places I've lived, where you just go from place to place and you see the Christmas lights and you know, that they would receive. They know the tradition. They probably know the songs. Everyone feels awkward about it, but they smile and it's everyone's happy they did it. And they, at the end, but that, that's just the way where everyone kind of knows what you're doing. There's no offense taken. There's no, there's no awkwardness with regard to, there's no uncertainty with regard to the possible offense given to someone, right? There's no Muslim. There's no Hindu. Like everyone kind of knows. And if there is like that family that's Hindu, then you skip that time. But the point being is like, if you don't know, it, it creates this place where now, now that that tradition is becomes kind of killed off by by diversity. Right. So that's just an example of I, I would prefer to live in a society where I could go door to door caroling and have, you know, just suffer through the awkwardness of them hearing me sing. That's it. Right. So. That, that's kind of that that's what I'm getting at. That's one aspect of it. But that, that's also the, the whole idea of caroling. You look at the top, it says traditional English song or uh, old Welsh or this or that. It's rooted in a certain um, tradition that originates someplace from which most people singing it kind of originates in some in some regard. Uh, and people are receiving the song of some kind of history with it as well. It's it's that instead of talking about genetics and race and skin color, my argument was that it's good to have a people that are historically rooted, grounded in a, in a particular heritage that live in a certain place together, because then you can go beyond the simple human things of um, uh, like basic human goods that we know, like the Hindu family next door is going to share with, with you, but you can actually do these higher level acts of, of love towards one another that goes beyond a basic humanity up to something higher, like singing caroling at, at people's doorsteps uh, with mutual understanding. And uh, that there's more, and you know, it's more, that's more than just like a snapshot of culture. Oh, this, like, at this moment, people understood what, what that, that step cultural activity meant. It's rooted in generations 
a, uh, um, doing the same thing, transmitting it to my kids. This is why my four kids are going to go with us on Saturday to do this. They're going to receive, they're going to participate in that event. And hopefully whoever they marry, they will do something similar if they have the opportunity. And so that, that is what I mean by people in place. I explicitly say in the book is not like, Hey, you're too German to be singing this English traditional English song. You need to, sorry, you're, you know, <laughs> you're not allowed to be in this group. We're English and actually we do have a Welsh family in our church. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, yeah. So yeah, you German and Italian folks aren't allowed that that's not it. Um, but we can, uh, uh, it's, it's, if you have that tradition, you can then participate in that and pass it on your children as a people. It's not a genetic thing. So that, that's the argument of the book, but yeah, people get nervous because yeah. then it's like, Oh, wait a second. There are people different in our society. Yeah. And Wolf is talking about how, Hey, maybe you can't actually do these things with these other people because well, they have different cultures, which I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that is true. You can still have mutual respect for these people, for people sure. who are different than you. Yeah. You can wish the best of, for them, but that doesn't mean they're going to come caroling with you. You know what I mean? So, but no one, the, the people get freaked out because they think that, well, uh, everything has to be universal. Everything you do has to be something anyone could do. But no, it's it's that's not that's not as, there's a as whole human beings. cultural heritage that's being passed on, right? There's an inheritance that you're giving to your children. That's that's important. Um, well, they, they know, think, Josh, you just said, I'm going to whip out a DNA test when someone asks to date my daughter. That's what they're hearing. That's the weird thing to me. And it's really smart people that are hearing that kind of thing when you say that, which I know what you mean. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Well, I met hopefully. <laughs> I imagine after this conversation, maybe they'll take us this way. Yeah, but I mean, it it, it seems to me like um, these were uh, Wolf's book doesn't flatline. This is what egalitarianism seems to do, and you know, in broader um, contexts and applications, it seems to sort of flatline difference, natural difference that that is actually very good and healthy and and good. I just said that, and I realize that somebody's going to listen to that and say, "Oh, he's a." he's a kinist or something. No, 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 I'm not, I'm, a, I'm actually not. Um, but, um, but I recognize that these differences, natural differences are good. They're designed by God. God, um, I mean, in the, in the scriptures, we see recognition of difference. That's, um, that's, that's, um, reflective of, of God's glory and creation. Uh, these are important differences. And at a practical level, in terms of how it is that you order your own family life and then society to some extent, I mean, without putting a fine sort of point on this in terms of like being dogmatic, I can't be dogmatic about it, but in terms of um, it's just a practically wise, prudent. Um, if we, if we have an actual heritage, we have an inheritance that we're giving to our children that is that is um, partly a knowledge inheritance that we're passing on to our children, but it's also a practical inheritance of of rhythms and customs and rights and these sorts of things that themselves are sustaining of natural goods. It's good to preserve those things to some extent. Doesn't mean that you don't allow any sort of difference, um, but um, but um, I mean I think just a a kind of good old conservative principle is that um, 
you got to be at least prudent about how much change you bring too quickly into a situation where you where you actually end up doing more harm to the the, the dynamics of of family and societal life. Um, and this is why I mean immigration is important. What's well, a related issue? It's an important issue. This is why we don't allow um, just um, open up the floodgates and allow a complete sort of set of cultural um, practices and values into a society because that ends up sort of eroding the the sort of um, the sort of um, cultural practices and inher- uh, the heritage that we have, and it begins to sort of flatline any sort of distinction that that has that has historically been the means by which we sustain a set of, of goods and values is I yeah. went on a kind of, uh, no, no, it's good. It, I, I think the strength of Stephen's book and in, in a way on this topic is that Stephen, you uh, have a more holistic approach to this than your, your critics seem to think you have uh, where you're looking at shared experience over time in a, in a place, share events, the things like that. I know you, you use the World War II story often uh, about, you know, grandfathers from World War II and you can talk about it and you share commonality, shared loves. So it, it really is order Amara stuff. It really is. There's nothing novel about this. You can find this in Augustine, but, uh, but that's the odd thing. That's, that's the weird thing. That's the pathology. That's the, uh, what, what I think we need to examine more. And, and I wish more people would, would write about this is, we got a weird um, kind of uh, obsession in the reformed evangelical world where I guess it's anti-racism or something like that. Even people who say they're not CRT, you know, I, I don't believe in CRT like Kevin DeYoung. I mean, he can't get away from this. He's got to uh, look at your project as not sufficiently against uh, segregation enough or something like that, it, which really wasn't the purpose of your project, but it, it, there has to be, there's like a requirement. Like you, you pinch the incense, like anything that you do in the political realm, you need to preface it with like, and uh, segregation was the worst thing that ever happened. And, uh, and, and it's like, you, you can't get away from that. There's the very simple thinking about genetics and that it all reduces down to that, which is what they want to put on you. So, I mean, I, I think though, that if you just read your book though, you're holistic about this. You're not, you're not looking at genetics as the primary thing, or even, uh, the, or, or I should say the only thing you're, you're, I think at one point you admit that like shared, um, what, what do you say? Like so, something like a, a shared ancestry or, or heritage in, in the sense of like, uh, you know, coming from the same stream. I don't remember exactly how you put it. Like, you know, that, that there is shared experience that's built up because of that, but you're looking at the shared experience. And um, now I'm going on my own tangent here. I guess well, no, I, it, and it I think annoys that, me, man. It annoys me. That's how he. That's how he defines ethnicity to some extent, right? I mean, um, which in our culture is is multiracial uh, already. I mean, it's mul- right? Is it? Yeah. So I mean, it's the reason I used ethnicity as opposed to culture is I, I, I think too often people think culture is like a snapshot in time. What do we do at this period of time? Whereas ethnicity does emphasize that it does emphasize ancestry. It does, it does matter that your great grandfather, your grandfather, great grandfather existed in this place, lived in this place, made this mark upon the world, contributed to this great event. All that of course matters. And anyone who denies that is just frankly lying or they have no experience of place. I mean, it matters that my grandfathers were in world war II. That Mm -hmm. matters. 
Um, it, so, so all these things, it, it matters that my uncle and my father were in the military. All these things matter um, to my relationship to the place I live, the people I live um, with. And uh, so that's why I said ethnicity. Um, but I did try to say that, look, I mean, but, but it's also a matter of like the experience itself. When I, when I talk to a guy, um, if, if we're talking about World War II and our grandfathers, I'm not trying to think through, well, to what extent is he German or is he whatever this or that, and I'm, I'm English and this, that. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about, we have a shared experience in the same country, uh, people who fought and next to next to one another. Uh, right. So, um, that's that's the whole that's the point that's why i was using ethnicity but i i think this like part of this goes back to i don't want to jump back in the dualism thing but people are afraid people want to use the egalitarian possibilities of grace to bring them into nature and so the reason why people don't like me distinguishing like human goods and then like goods of the gospel or something and one's mainly about salvation one's about good in this world they don't want me to do that because they can then use the like the like the egalitarian aspects of the gospel, which are real, to and the universality part of it to then apply into this world. So, uh, or to, to to apply within earthly life, and that means they can they can support mass immigration, they can support kind of a weak politics, uh, Christian politics. Um, they they can uh, they, they can kind of um, downplay cultural particularity uh they can downplay your connection your natural connection to ancestors in a place all of that can then be in in a way like incoherently affirmed but then also you know quote relativized by grace for their own for their own ends which is really just yeah so i I think that's one fear and that with that regard is to i'm separating things i'm i'm removing their tools from by which they can do a type of egalitarian politics uh, you know, so yeah, which no, they a, which they then um, without critically engaging your work, they perceive you as as um, reverting backwards to uh, a kind of um, wicked patterns that have already been redeemed in the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, they right. No, go. No, uh, sorry, Stephen. No, no. Hey, go ahead. Go We're ahead. gonna end sorry, it soon, was... but you can say something. <laughs> Did you have a last word? Um, uh, yeah, well, they, uh, right. Um, Maybe they, that threw, threw off the conversation. Sorry. Well, no, no. What I was going to say is, yeah, among, yeah. If you're talking about different Christian peoples, the, the gospel is, you can affirm, you should affirm that the gospel is universal, that someone of a different culture can be, is just as saved as someone as from, from another. Right. So there is this kind of sh- this unity in Christ uh but people then want to bring that into politics and then trivialize those distinctions those important particularities and say ultimately none of those differences matter because the only thing that matters is our common unity uh, uh with christ or in christ and yeah. i want to separate those things because i think I think it goes back to just anthropology that there are human goods. One human good in the world is to have continuity, ancestral continuity in a certain place uh, with the tradition that's handed over from one generation to, to the next. And uh, that's all, 
that's actually a human, that's a fundamental human good um, that grace cannot eradicate. So, so even if we are, so even if we are united in Christ and kind of share in the, uh, the, the benefits of, of that, of, of that unity, uh, that doesn't trivialize the good, the fundamental good, which is that cultural particularity that we, you know, and, and because that's a good, uh, politics is in part a protection of that good. So th- that means that people of a certain cultural particularity can say, this is a fundamental human good. This is how we receive that good in these particular patterns of life. And we want to act in politics to preserve that, to maintain that human good. And then and it, we would expect the other people on the other side of the border to do the same thing because they have a certain good perform differently, receive differently, and their political life is in part oriented to pre- pre- preserving that for their good. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I want to be uh, gracious to you guys. I know you probably have things you need to do today. Do you, do you have like maybe five to 10 more minutes or? Oh, I thought we were going to go two hours, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> this is did. This no, is I've done the, I've done yeah, like three three and a half hour. Uh, oh, we're, okay. We lose the time. Just All right, to, maybe I'm the one that uh, I have Christmas stuff that I got to do. But uh, uh, okay. so so I, one thing that and maybe this is something if we could all agree on this, this would help clarify in the minds of a layman who are listening to this. And, and of course they uh, they're repulsed by uh, you know stories of uh, civil rights, segregation, slavery, whatever. And, um, and, and they're scared because, uh, you, you know, they're used to this diet of anything written in the political realm by a Christian must elevate MLK or something like that. And Stephen doesn't do that. That's not really part of his project. But I, I think, Stephen, you, you, you said something that just clicked in my mind. The tools that you offer and the tools, I guess, you take out of the hands of the people who are your critics would produce something very different. For example, I'm thinking of, for myself, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I'm assuming you guys would agree with me. Um, you can tell me if you don't. Uh, I, I think we would oppose, basically speaking, at least the image you have when you think of like racial segregation, right? We, we would probably oppose that on like prudential grounds more than we would on ideological grounds. Like, and I think the um, Christian intelligentsia very much wants their project, whatever it is, to be the a bedrock, black and white, um, across universally across all places and times. It is it is wrong for peoples to be separate or to have any any separation imposed upon them. And, and I think we, we can all look at the world even now and think, well, there are situations intent Israel right now. Maybe, you know, there are situations where maybe certain groups of people being separate makes for more peace. And it's not that we want that, but that's, you know, that's kind of like a. That's just the way that the world works. Like you're just naive if you think it doesn't work that way. So we're not universalists on like, well, it, it this is the a universal evil to to ever have people that are separate from one another. Um, but uh, the tools in our arsenal, I think, uh, uh, Stephen, are more um, fr- from this temporal world realm, right? This, these natural goods and and. And we're looking at it in that way. And we can look at a situation like maybe United States in the 1950s and say, okay, this is not healthy. This is not good across, maybe, you know, across the board, this is, this is causing all kinds of problems. Um, This needs to end. Uh, And, 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 and we can see something like that. And, 
but not be universalist in the sense that the evangelical elites today are, where they, they want to have like all this moral authority and, and credit themselves with being, I guess, righteous people because they're uh, even more against this travesty that everyone says is the worst thing ever. Um, I don't know if that's making sense. It just clicked in my mind, though, Stephen, as you said, tools for some reason. And that's where I think you you fall short in the minds of uh, many. And in fact, Kevin Young just gave you a one star I saw. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> Really? He did. That's awful. Well, apparently, if you Google the book, Kevin DeYoung gave Steven out of five stars a one on the TGC. I don't know how they do it on the TGC website. Yeah, I don't know who actually rated that. I I don't know who did that. It had to be a one star because like that's I mean, that's the Kevin DeYoung is like the he's the voice of the of the of the moderates in the PCA (laughs) in the Presbyterian world. And so, yeah, but anyway, that's a different issue. But I, I mean, on, on this issue, yeah, people he can't give you any credibility, can he? He cannot. <laughs> he can't. Right. If he did, he would be in trouble. Right. I, I threw out a wrench there. Sorry. Sorry, Stephen. All right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny uh, as another aside, it's funny how people when they actually hear me talk, they they find out that I'm actually far more reasonable than they expected, that I'm actually a fairly reasonable guy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's a. um where was I? Oh yeah. Uh, segregation. Let's get into that. No, um, <laughs> no, like people, people for, they freak out when there's any kind of sense in which there'd be people would prefer to kind of live among people who are similar than, um, people who are similar as they are. And people kind of freak out about that, that notion, but that's people do that just by, uh, choosing where you're going to live. And I think there's, there's a reason for that. And that's because, you know how to act among people who, you know, how they're going to act, you know, you're going to act every, everyone is kind of has a, a mutual understanding of what you do and what you say. And um, so all, all sorts of things. And so that there's, it's just, it's, it, it creates kind of an ease of life when you have mutual understanding. Um, and this is true between people of, of um, you know, different white, different white groups would be the same thing. This is not like a sort of like a racial thing. Uh, but it's German, but people freak out about that and they think there's something wrong with that. Whereas I think that culture itself, there's no universal culture. The gospel didn't provide some sort of universal, universal culture. People are going to have different languages, different ways of life, different clothing, different expressions, different customs and festivals. And they're going to, even if they share the same festival or the same sort of event, they're going to do it differently. Um, and all that's just perfectly fine. And, we shouldn't freak out that's that people who do have a way of life would prefer to live among people with a similar way of life. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, there is that, again, there is that egalitarian impulse that's in our society. And then the theology shows up to justify doing whatever you can to eradicate difference and, uh, and particularity. Um, so. Well, last question I have for Josh and then Steven, I think that's a great point, Steven. Um, what do we do about this? Now, we've been going on for almost uh, an hour and a half now uh, and talking about objections, assuming the audience has a basic familiarity already, I guess, with this. And they've looked around and seen, oh, man, all these people seem to not like Stephen's book. Uh, how do you approach this? I don't know if you've thought about the problem, because because I, I now find myself in a situation I didn't realize we were in where the intelligentsia in Christianity and reform Christianity and evangelicalism is uh basically more or less tools of the regime they don't even know it sometimes but they're uh it seems like their job is to try to make sure that 
um, the regime knows that we're not really a threat. And uh, and so Stephen looks like a threat coming in and they all kind of attack like like antibodies would attack a virus. And, and this is a problem because um, that means we're pretty leaderless, if that's true. That, that means you can't even have whether you agree or disagree with Stephen, right, is even somewhat immaterial to me. I mean, he's making thoughtful arguments here. This is someone that needs to be encouraged. This is someone that you want to like, like, that's what I don't get is like, why, why wouldn't, I, I don't know, maybe behind the scenes, Stephen, some of these people have reached out and tried to like engage you in more rational ways, but it, no. Okay. So, so this <laughs> no. is disappointing. Like what, what do yeah. we do to rebuild or, or, or to have, cause we need, it, it's required, I think for any movement to succeed. Um, even when Christianity was in its, its, its birthing stage, if you will, I mean, you had 12 apostles, right? We need hierarchy. We need people at the top who somewhat know what they're doing and love the people they serve. And I'm just realizing we don't have it. Um, this is unique and th this is kind of concerning. And so, so I want to hear what you guys have to say, Josh, maybe you first and then Steven. Yeah, that's a big question. Do you well, we just make memes making fun of them? Is that <laughs> what, that's a big question. I, I mean, I think, um, uh, one of uh, Aaron Wren's episodes, he um, talks about the problems and kind of Protestantism for uh, raising up leaders in, in the socio-political environment. And I think that context is important. I think he, he I think he makes a really good point that we're at, we're at a point where um, we don't have leaders um, that uh, any sort of insertion of, of yourself to bring about some sort of change in even long term change is um, frowned upon and um, if you're not um, if you're not uh, giving sort of the this sort of the mainstream line uh, and you're challenging that at all which wolf is challenging um, then uh, you're um, you're perceived as being not only a dissenter but also you I think there, there's a perception that you are um, um, uh, 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 challenging, right? I mean, um, and, um, and so, um, I think he brings up a good point that what Wolf is trying to do here in his project, and I think he's doing, uh, in many ways is he's, he's providing a sort of countercultural trend to, uh, evangelical, um, the evangelical culture that we've created now that it parallels in so many ways, um, the tactics and the methods, and the thought patterns of the world. I mean, in many ways, uh, aspects of um, social aspects of the evangelical culture are kind of, uh, a lot of people will say they're like 10 or 20 years downstream from where the mainstream culture is. And so the values that they imbibe just takes a little longer for it to um, be processed and to become part of the the um, the rhythms of, of the evangelical culture. So what you see uh, Wolf doing is, I mean, uh, Wolf is, uh, Wolf is acting as a leader here, and he's um, he is stirring up the conversation. I think in very helpful ways to get us to think of to not only to retrieve our found um, our um, our tradition and to think about <clears throat> what it is that we've given up in embracing and foregrounding these values that are mainstream in the culture, and he's forcing. Um, some kind of um, uh, self-reflection on w what it is that we've become as a people, 
as families, as as a church as well, and what it is that uh, what our values are, what our virtues are, what are the ideals that we hold to in society or nation, as well as in well the church itself. Um, so, what do we do beyond that? I, I don't have a worked out plan. Um, I, I, I don't. That's, that's a okay. Big, question. I'm not sure how to answer it. I've been toying and going back and forth with, you know, I've been a part of kind of these conservative uh, evangelical sort of denominations, you know, throughout my life that have kind of separated from the mainstream denominations. Um, and I'm, my nationalist tendencies now are realizing we really gave up a lot in many ways. The, I mean, I look at the ACNA, for example, the ACNA. Uh, we all know the Anglican Church of North America. Mm -hmm. They broke away from tech um, for, I mean, very good reasons. They're doing their own thing now. But what they gave up was quite, quite a lot. They gave up institutions, backing, heritage, buildings, and the like, right, that are sustaining of of good things and they're trying to do something new and entrepreneurial. Um, we'll see how long that lasts, right? I'm not sure it's going to have longevity. Will tech have longevity though either? I'm not sure that it will either. Um, uh, but um, there's a new kind of movement of what do you call it? Recon Reconquista. Yeah. Reconquista. The, the, this attempt to kind of reclaim the mainstream, um, uh, uh, denominations uh, in, in the U.S. And I think there's something valuable in that. Will it work? Do they have plans, like well-worked out plans to actually make it happen? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I'm giving you a very um, uh, 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 inadequate sort of... Well, you know, you, you bring up some good points because, I mean, I, I haven't heard any like really great attempts at this because it, like it's either we form the leadership factory over here, which we know that doesn't work really. <laughs> I can't point you to a seminary that I'm like, Oh, there you just go to this seminary, then you'll have a good pastor. Uh, or it's, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like most the seminaries are dying. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. really struggling or it's reconquista, which I don't know of any successful stories related to that. It's a lot of talk, but uh, I can't think of like a, a, a liberal Episcopalian church or something that was, uh, taken back or something from liberalism. And, and so, so yeah, you, you have this challenge. And I think you said that one thing though, that, that does stand out to me, like Stephen's a leader. And I think there's something to that. Stephen actually risked his neck, put his thoughts out there, wanted to help people. Maybe if more there people and I, there, there was, a there, yeah, yeah. And I think people rallying because, because I think there are people rallying to Stephen, but they're, uh, they do tend to be younger, I think. And they do tend to be active online and maybe they're not in all the you know academic faculty lounges and so forth but they are the the ones who are going to fund whatever comes next in evangelical christianity and so there's something to that maybe people who risk their necks maybe they don't have all the academic accolades yet but maybe that's the place we start to build so steven what do you think yeah i mean as of like right now the Within like the reform denominations, OPC, PCA, it's pretty clear that they're the the kind of the, the leaders or the prominent figures are not um, 
are not fans, let's say that. But I, I do think that there are the, the trouble that they're going to have. And I think that this is part of the reason why I think the, the young wanted to write the review and give it one star. It was basically kind of a signal to younger people that if you take this position or these sets of positions or some of the bad positions in there, then you're going to be kind of separated from polite society within the denomination. You, you can be here, you know, but you're not going to actually rise up in any sort of prominence uh, and get the book deals and all that kind of thing. So, but I, I do think that over uh, within the next, uh, you know, decade or, or, or two, there's going to be like younger people and maybe even sooner, there's going to be younger people who do like these, these, uh, the Christian nationalist position. They, they may not, I do know, I, I know plenty of people who don't like the term Christian nationalism. They don't like the word nationalism or they don't think it's uh, going to work for them. Uh, and I've always said, well, I, I prefer you to affirm the ideas uh, if, if you, uh, if you're not going to take the term and that's fine. That's totally fine with me. Um, but I think eventually I, I'm hoping that these, that these people within those denominations as pastors can then uh, begin to uh, kind of make this, this position, uh, make Christian nationals or just Christian politics or an assertive Christian politics mm. as something that has a lot of traction within the, the denominations. But I think, all, but this is, I think it's going to be a movement outside of pastors. I think it has to be people realizing that, that, uh, if they're, you don't need to be an elder, you don't need to be uh, a pastor, you don't need to be a theologian in order to have some kind of influence within the Christian world with regard to Christian politics. You don't need to pursue a kind of spiritual sacred calling to do these things. And in fact, some ways, uh, in many ways, that that is actually a good thing to avoid all that. I, I have not, I have no ambition to become an elder or to become a pastor, anything of that sort. I think in ways would actually hinder me in, in the letting me say what I want to say. And so people should be very comfortable with that. And I think that means others should also uh, look to non-pastors, non-elders, non-churchmen for uh, their, their political insights, non-theologians, um, and, uh, and, and go from there. And, and so that, that's, that's where I, I kind of see the way forward. I, I also think that uh, things are going to be get get worse, uh, especially for kind of young uh, young white men, and they're already kind of seeing the writing on the wall with regard to college admissions, um, jobs, and other just uh, the the fact that that society is essentially thinks that that they are the enemy that needs to be kind of eradicated um, or suppressed. Uh, that that is going to kind of uh, uh, I think reveal to a lot of young men that they need to have a more, that Christians need a more assertive politics yes. to resist these things. And so there is that, that opportunity. I mean, I, I think, I think there's been, I think it's just, it's just coming to the surface It's becoming more explicit. What has been implicit for, for many years. Um, and, and that's not to like, so people are going to say that's like, Oh, you're trying to harness like the anger of, of young, um, you know, young men. I think it's more of the fact that it's the recognition that this country historically was a Protestant country and uh, and had Anglo-Protestant values. And now that's all that's been flipped against us and that we need to kind of seize that that heritage that it, that essentially say that is what America is. It's what it was and, and, and it should still be. 
and then and go from there. And that's really what I think American Christian nationalism is. Primarily, it's a it's a, a recognition of our essentially Anglo-Protestant cultural heritage that's now being kind of eliminated. Yeah. No, that was I, good. Yeah, sure. Can I add some uh, things, uh, items to that real quick? Uh, I think that's that's important. Yeah, I think those are good, uh, good, good uh, notes uh, to end on. The evangelical institutions are, are basically uh, downstream as well from the uh, um, hiring practices now and their restructuring as well. I mean, we're seeing these um, in academic institutions and seminaries quite clearly. Um, uh, it's interesting in the corporate world, I wanted to bring this up. Uh, you guys familiar with the recent Bloomberg study? Uh, it's quite fascinating. Um, in 2020, there was uh, a promise from the big corporations to do a complete rehaul, restructuring uh, of um, hiring um, in HR to um, restructure um, who they hire and hire more minorities and fewer white people. I saw that. And um, if there's any truth in that study, which the study seems to show that only 6% uh, white people are being hired now, which is, a, a, I mean, that has all sorts of implications for devastating and, 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 and culture that we're trying to, uh, you know, to develop. And then the rest are just um, minority hires. So there's this complete restructuring of the corporate world now. Um, which um, raises a lot of questions about um, the heritage that we're trying to sustain and maintain, which seems to be um, in the process of being completely demolished if it's not already demolished. Well, and, and people don't realize, I just want to add this, that it's not just, you know, you talk about heritage and, and it's so important and a lot of people don't get that, but there's other like practical implications. I had a friend who a few years ago, he worked for a, a manufacturing a plant that made parts for Boeing aircraft. And he told me, look, in 10 years, now I'm trying to think this was like five years ago, but he's like, in 10 years, I don't want to get on an airplane. I'm, I'm afraid to because, mm. and this was before 2020, mm. uh, they were, uh, the contracts to get materials, whatever they, you know, contracts they were using to, um, uh, for their uh, parts were, going to women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, LGBT-owned businesses. And they were saying that, you know, white men, and this, of course, was something they were bragging about, I think, uh, publicly, that this is how we're sourcing our materials and so forth. And it, it's not that, you know, he's against any of that. It's just more like the quality went way down. And that's what I think, these are implications that people aren't even thinking about. Like, Quality is going to go way down. Services are going to go way down. Mm -hmm. um, are we ready for that? Right. And, and it's going to take strong people to people to get through that. So, um, anyway, sorry, I, I did I cut you off? I don't know if you had one more thing you wanted to say. Um, I, I think I did. I forgot, but I, I think it's a sorry. good question to end on because I, I mean, I would like to know more practical plans. How to? Um, I mean, just practical plans about like discipleship. Here's the thing, like um, men who are trying to be leaders in the Protestant world. I mean, uh, I, I, don't rem I don't remember getting much advice in terms of how to integrate that with my own Christian worldview when I was in my 20s. I've just now in my 40s learned things that I should have known in my 20s. 
and that uh, would have uh, altered the decisions that I made in terms of how I order my family. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and uh, these are very practical on the ground things that are um, completely uh, out, almost um, in, uh, almost uh, non-existent in, in the sort of Protestant Christian churches, at least as I was a part of them, that are relevant to this discussion in terms of uh, ordering principles, uh, natural ordering principles, and how we think about um, uh, 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 counseling young men to become leaders um, in, in their own homes and in their societies and maybe in, even in politics to, uh, to, 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 to be the sort of conduits of change and to be more assertive or even one word that's unpopular, more masculine in some ways. Um, uh, that's anyway, you asked that question. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question to end on because I think uh, there's a lot more to think about here. I think we're. Uh, yeah, so, sometimes I wonder whether or not we ought to be just recognizing the leaders who have, like Stephen, who's put his neck out there and rallying around them and you uplifting them as examples more than let's build the next leadership factory, which is destined to be filled with people who teach leadership skills that aren't actual leaders. So, mm -hmm. um, so, so maybe that's the way forward. But you know, it, it's all in the Lord's hands, of course, and we trust His providence. And uh, so, on that, I just want to say Happy New Year to both of you. Um, and hey, where can people find you? Where do you want me to send people, Josh, and then Stephen? Uh, oh, great! Yeah. Um, where, where does the hate mail go? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, they can um, uh, look up my um, Facebook page, uh, Soul Science Ministries, and uh, JoshuaRFerris.com. JoshuaRFerris.com. You're supposed to say it three times. People get it. JoshuaRFerris.com. Soul Science Ministries. Soul Science Soul Ministries. Science. Soul okay. science. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, so you can look there and you can uh, reach out to me there. And um, All right. Yeah. And then St Stephen, uh, Twitter, where, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, Twitter's good. Yeah. Perf and All just. Right. <laughs> perf and just. What does that mean, by the way? Perf and just? Yeah, what's perf and just? <laughs> what is, what's it's like, it's a dumb, I was reading Plato and it's, it's a line in, in the Republic, uh, about perfect injustice. And I was like, you know what? That's all these people, you know, it's a long explanation. It's dumb. It's a dumb name. My wife hates it, but I refuse to change it because it's, it's, it's dumb. And it's, it's my <laughs> Twitter heritage. It doesn't make any sense. And you'll pass on the handle down to your children. I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> God bless guys. Happy new year. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.